Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the Strength Ratio podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Greenwald, joined as always by Kyle Klachenko. Our guest today has been on before. Our guest is Dr. James Hoffman of Renaissance Periodization. And when James was on last, we discussed the volume landmarks of training. And if you've listened at all to uh, either James or Dr. Mike Isratel talk about the volume landmarks of training, it's often in the context of bodybuilding, though James' specialty and interests are more in the field sports, uh, which we discussed last on the podcast. We also discussed the volume landmarks in the context of a CrossFit athlete, and this brought uh, to the fore how important a needs analysis was, making sure that you're spending, uh, basically, you're getting the best bang for your buck because you're spending time where it's needed most when variables are high. And then we discussed how you'd apply the volume landmarks therein. But we have James back to discuss a little bit more of the volume landmarks in the context of a concurrent plan. We're also going to talk about any of his evolving ideas on the relationship between volume and progressing intensity. If you're listening to this episode now, you might have previously heard Dr. Eric Helms on the podcast presenting an argument for improving intensity as much as you can safely uh, before adding sets to a program. And that's probably where we're going to end the show. Uh, but first, uh, James, just wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. We so much admire your work and, and loved our first talk, and we're so grateful that you're on again. Thanks for having me back, guys. It's always fun. I appreciate all the kind words. Yeah, so um, it, if you've uh, kept up with Dr. Mike Isratel's work, uh, just know that James was – right there with him uh, creating these volume landmarks. And if you're not familiar with what they are, uh, perhaps, and if you haven't listened to episode one, which you should, James, would you mind just kind of laying that introduction before we just kind of dive back in? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, yeah, I'm kind of like the Alfred to Mike's Batman. That's my like running joke. Yeah. Uh, always a kind of a team effort. Um, but yeah, so the volume landmarks are essentially a set of tools that we kind of outlined um, that basically describes uh, the dose response relationships of training. And so what that means to a uh, layperson or just the average Joe is like, okay, what are the minimum amounts of training I need to get better? What's the minimum amount of training I need to do to just not get worse? Uh, and what's the maximum amount of training I can tolerate and still recover from? And then there's kind of a pretty big spectrum of places in between some of those zones, some of which are really, really good and some of which are maybe less good. So basically the idea with the volume landmarks is I need to start figuring out kind of how much training I should be doing at any given moment and understanding what the limitations on the upper and lower limits are, right? So I don't want to be overtraining, nor do I want to be undertraining. And the volume landmarks are a tool to help us keep in that golden zone. Cool. So where I'd like to kick off with my first question, and this would apply to a bodybuilder, it would apply to a CrossFitter, and I think any field sport athlete as well, is that are these landmarks, especially if we just highlight your minimum effective volumes and maximum recoverable volumes. Is this something that you want to work up against every single mesocycle? Or do you see benefit in perhaps having times of the year based around, say, competition or someone's schedule where you're maybe not going to what is, and again, folks, this is not your maximum 
it is the maximum that you can recover from. Those are two very different things. It's built into the name, but still a little bit misunderstood. Uh, do you think, James, that that is something that we want to come up against every cycle or not, and, and, and why? Wow. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think the, the the tool set as a whole are something that we want to use all the time, even if we're not being super, super rigid, right? So you might have a really good idea of like, okay, I know for chest, on average, I should start somewhere around 12 sets and I should end somewhere, you know, my mesocycle around, you know, whatever, 24 sets. Um, do you have to always do that all the time? It's probably a good idea, but sometimes you can just ballpark it and fudge it, especially if you're in like a low priority training time, like if you're just doing maintenance training throughout the year or if you're like on vacation or during the holidays or something. Do you have to really do it by the books all the time like that? Yeah, probably not. And then I think kind of what you were also getting at is like, should I always be kind of thinking about pushing the limits of my maximum recoverable volume for whatever it is that I'm doing at any given time? Uh, the answer is no. Not necessarily. And there's probably a lot of good reasons to not always be at the threshold of what you can tolerate. Now, I think it's a good idea to push that um, throughout the year and have times where you say, okay, I have some really serious training I'm trying to do. Like if you're doing a mass phase or you're peaking for a competition, like a powerlifting or a weightlifting meet or even a CrossFit meet, something like that, you say, okay, I know I have to push it, right? I have to really kind of go test the waters and far and get as much out of my training as I can. But for kind of, you know, Tuesday, uh, tried and true and just normal training. Um, do you have to do that all the time? No, absolutely not. And, it, and you could make a case that says, um, pushing that too often or too frequently might actually be at your detriment. So there's a balance to be struck there. Absolutely. But I think as a whole, these are some tools that we should be at least cog conscious of all the time. Um, just making sure that you're, you know, never going too crazy, but never like dogging it either. So you always want to be making progress one way, shape or form. You always want to be doing some form of fatigue management. So it's something that we should be using more or less all the time. I, sometimes when I, or I guess the question I also have about the amount of volume we should be doing for any fitness characteristic when we're training multiple is obviously you can look at uh, what the science says uh, in terms of uh, more in strength and hypertrophy sets per week or sets per muscle group, etc. cetera. Uh, but then when you're training multiple at the same time, how would you begin to maybe adjust those recommendations in their respective sports uh, when they're all together? Does, does that make sense? So like if I'm yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, like I imagine if you're just like, oh, well, this is what the science says for, for strength. This is what it says for endurance, that that could even already be above your MRV because those are all tra trained in isolation when they're looked at, not together. Yeah, for sure. So here's, here's a couple points, right? So the first off, any of the guidelines that you get are, are guidelines, right? And so there's a huge swath of individual variation, right? So those are good places to start. And then afterwards, you would, of course, always individualize for, for any given person, including yourself and your clients and all that stuff. Number two, right? You have to definitely be skeptical if you're looking at anything that's just dose, like kind of dose-dependent responses that are mm -hmm. um, done independently, like you said, right? So if you're looking at something, you say like, oh, okay, people seem to do really good with this much chest per week, but they didn't do anything else. No one yeah. trains like that. That doesn't make any sense. So what we're getting at here is, right, there are systemic effects that we have to be aware of. Because uh, think about it like a really funny and like really stupid kind of example is like, okay, how much like uh, back or how much like how many pull-ups per week could you do if you did not do any deadlifting at all? Like if you did no deadlift variations whatsoever, infinity, you just probably, you know what I mean? Like you, maybe you could just keep doing pull-ups every day. 
Who knows? But the fact that nobody ever trains like that, everyone always does some kind of leg movements, whether it's deadlifts or squats, whatever, makes it um, kind of a, a, an external validity problem. And what that means is how, how can I generalize this to other people? And then you can't because nobody does that. So when you're considering these things, they should be under a relatively normal context. So for bodybuilding, that would mean, okay, I'm training my chest, but I'm also training everything else. So my MRV for chest is going to be kind of within the context of doing a relatively kind of holistic training approach, training everything. That would be different if you did like a chest emphasized meso, right? Where you say, okay, maybe I'm moving some of my other muscle groups down to maintenance volume and expanding the volume that I could train for chest. That would be a different scenario. And that's probably the easiest to understand. Then it gets more complicated when you start looking at sports, right? Where you say, okay, well, now I have I'm trying to train all the muscles that are going to make me successful in sport. I also have to do cardio and I have to do my sports stuff. So how do I start figuring that stuff out? Well, it's the same idea. So you take any kind of vanilla week, whether where you'd have some combination of all those things, right? Where you say like, okay, my athlete normally does a weight training uh, session three to four times a week. They normally have a cardio specific session one to two times per week. And then they may do their sport training uh, three ish times per week. Those are the ideal times where you should try and figure out where some of these numbers are. You don't want to try and figure it out and be like, okay, now we're off season and we're not really doing any soccer, any rugby, any running. We're just doing weight training stuff. Well, I'm going to try and find my MRV. You can do that for your muscle groups. But then when you try to extrapolate that to your main season, it's going to be all fucked up and there's no way you're going to be able to figure it out. So ideally, you should be trying to figure these things out in the most what we what we would call ecologically valid conditions, which means the most um, generalizable to that population. So what they would be normally doing at any given time. So this is where it starts to get really fun and interesting in discussion because then you say, okay, for every little element that I add, whether it's weight training or sport training, that's going to be chipping away at my systemic MRV, right? So in theory, it's possible that I could be training some combination of all of these things, but then never actually hitting like a movement specific or muscle group specific MRV. Is that a bad thing or is it a good thing? It's neither. It's just something that we have to be aware of. So for example, like if you ran a needs analysis with your rugby guy and you said my, you know, their leg strength is just not where it's supposed to be and you are juggling all these different training modalities, if you want to make progress in leg strength or like squatting strength, for example, in order to do that, you need to increase the volume of training that you're allocating to that, right? Well, can you just add things without balancing them on the whole? No, that means you have to bring other things down. And so that's where like this fun idea of manipulating the volume, fun for me, it's like stupid, nerdy uh, math, weird, weird hybrid of like jock and nerd uh, where they meet. Um, that's where I think it gets really fun where you say like, okay, I have a clear need for something. How do I get there within the limitations of resources that I have? And that's where I think uh, sports scientists can really have fun with this idea. And I, I think, you know, we talked about something similar with Eric yesterday and that just came up to my head when you were saying that, that, uh, and I might be wrong here, that you're probably never going to be a hundred percent accurate here that there may be some assumptions and best guesses. Uh, yes, but absolutely. More, yeah, but the more you look at it, the closer you're going to get. And so that's that's a very good thing to, to have. Totally. And like, so like, uh, you know, some, one thing that Mike and I have talked about on RP Plus is, you know, like, 
how how do you know how many sets exactly is it going to be? Well, you can't because it might be like some weird fraction of a number. It might be like 22 and a quarter sets, right? It might be like 20 sets and then you think really hard about squatting and that puts you over your limit. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like it could be any number of variables like that uh, and on every, any given day. So it's like you said, the more you're just conscious of it, the more you're making an effort to get an idea of where these things are, probably the best. But if you're really trying to like – get it down to an exact like one to two repetitions on every single thing you might be, it might be paralysis by analysis at that point. And so in the beginning you mentioned uh, kind of like, or I had mentioned like what science may say, or, but these were in isolations and you have to uh, just those as you go. Could you, and hopefully this isn't too broad of a question, maybe talk about um, where some of those numbers uh, might be to begin with in terms of, maybe strength uh, and uh, potentially endurance? Because you guys have a pretty um, comprehensive hypertrophy uh, guidelines on your website. uh, So people could go there to look at that. But maybe for strength and endurance, since those would be more of that concurrent training uh, round. Yeah. So the strength one's a little bit more straightforward. What we generally find is for any kind of muscle group or we can even just say more like movement specific. So you could say like you could break it down and say, okay, quads, number of sets per week. For strength, you might have to break it down into like movement specific, like, okay, how many squats per week can I do? But more or less the same. Um, Usually what we find uh, for general strength, so kind of in like the four to eight rep range, like the transition between hypertrophy and maximal strength, usually a good number to start at for muscle groups is somewhere roughly around two-thirds the volume that you would normally do. That doesn't necessarily mean two thirds of your maximum recoverable volume, but like on average, two thirds of what you would normally do for hypertrophy work. So if you use the, the uh, hypertrophy guidelines that we kind of posted, I think Mike had a whole huge series on that. If you find, yeah, so you can use that to start and hypertrophy is probably the easiest one to figure out, which is great. You get that. Then you say, okay, I'm going to take two thirds of that on average for, you know, if I'm trying to figure out my benching or squatting or pulling, right? I'm going to start with two thirds and then play around from there. It might be a little bit less. It might be a little bit more. That would be kind of like the general strength range, a good place to start. I would say as you move into maximal strength, you're probably going to be about half of what you would be doing in the hypertrophy range. So this would be like, you know, going from like tens down to like one to threes, right? It's probably going to be about half of the total sets and reps in order to be adequately uh, expressing preparedness for maximal strength. Endurance, it gets a little crazy because you get a huge spectrum of endurance activities, right? And so people like to break this down into all sorts of different things. For me, the easiest way to talk about it is uh, by starting into kind of two categories. The first one is kind of your low intensity exercise endurance activities, which is like kind of prolonged continuous style training where you're either cycling, running, swimming, rowing, whatever, mostly continuously or very, very long intervals uh, using you know, glycolytic and oxidative kind of energy systems. And on the other hand, you have the high intensity intermittent ones, right? Where you have anything that can be like repeated sprinting type stuff, even single sprints, um, or what most team and field sports do, which is that intermittent kind of burst, rest, burst, rest, burst, rest type activity. So then it becomes difficult to to give general recommendations because those are so vastly different. And what makes them different? Well, the total durations are different and the intensity is different, right? So, you know, like uh, doing repeated sprints 
presents a very distinctly different kind of fatigue than jogging for, uh, you know, 20 miles or something like that. They're similar, right? They're both challenging, but they're challenging in different ways. So it becomes increasingly difficult to put really, really concrete numbers. What I will say is probably one of the best one of the best uh, ways to quantify those activities is just by the total duration, right? The duration is going to be effectively the same as using sets or efforts per week like we did in weight training. So the duration is probably really good. For continuous exercise, that's pretty straightforward. Like how long did can you go in one particular session? For intermittent exercise, probably the duration of actual efforts, right? So how uh, you would have to basically summate every interval to figure out the total duration. Or if the intervals are fairly consistent, you could use like number of efforts or number of repetitions at that point. So it gets more complicated, right? As you go. So it depends on how you want to break it down. After that, if you're trying to look at, okay, what are some ballpark MRVs for endurance training? Oh man, it's so hard. I can't, I can't, I don't even know where to start because right. You can have somebody, you got people who do like 400, the 400 in track and field is going to be a lot different than somebody who's running cross country, which is going to be different than somebody who's doing a triathlon. You know what I mean? So it's like, fuck, one of the only ways to figure it out is by looking at the individual, having a pretty good idea of some of the basic needs of the individual, right? So if you're looking at triathlon, you say, okay, what have been some of their strong points? What have been their weak points? You know, was it the transition from swim to bike? Did they, are they actually really awesome on the road, but their running's not great? You know, like where, where do some of the problems lies? Where, uh, how long do they have to run, bike or swim, right? Those are some baseline ideas of where we can start. For field sports and stuff like that, when you're doing the intermittent stuff, it becomes a little bit more straightforward only because there's a lot of data to support like how far any number of efforts should be. So for just as a really quick example, rugby, soccer, lacrosse, typically they've looked at how far do they run on any given movement. And what they find is it's usually between zero and 20 meters on average, right? That doesn't mean they don't do 60 meter runs every now and again or 80 meter runs. It just means more often than not, the type of the distance of the run that they do is somewhere around zero to 20 meters. So we know that's a really good place to start in terms of setting up our intervals. We might start a little bit longer when we're trying to develop running work capacity, certainly. But as we start moving into like our preseason kind of specific preparatory periods, we know that we want them to be really good at doing like 20 meter sprints in a work to rest ratio similar to their sport. So once we set up that kind of protocol where we say, okay, we're going to work on like 20 meter, you know, repeats or something like that. Then we're going to start dosing it out and trying to figure out, okay, how much of these do I actually see progress and how much do I actually see them start to shit the bed either in the weight room or at practice or the next time they do a cardio session, which becomes really difficult because you say, how do I know if they're shitting the bed on any one of these things, right? That's kind of the interesting question. And so then you have to actually start monitoring them. You have to say like, can they maintain the same race pace? Can they maintain the same number of efforts, right? Can they uh, maintain the same relative intensity? Those are things that we can start looking at and saying like, okay, this seems to all be in line. But once they start deviating, like if you, if you start adding volume, let's say, let's say you had them doing repeated sprints, 20 meters or whatever, right? You start adding volume, but you notice the the change from the first sprint to the last sprint in velocity is like 50%, right? You say like, okay, they did a maximum effort on one and then now on they're on their seventh rep and they're basically just wobbling through, right? Are they actually training 
high intensity intermittent cardio at that point. No, this is actually becoming more of a long, slow distance thing for them at that point. And that would be a reasonable cutoff point where you say like, you know what, I think within this session, we've exceeded their MRV for this particular characteristic. And I know week to week, I'm going to use that as a good starting number and build on it from there. Does that make sense? That was a huge long ramble of, of nonsense. It, it definitely does. And, you know, we had, it, it's nice to bring together discussions of MRV pertaining to hypertrophy with something a little bit more concurrent. Like I, I hadn't ever heard you or, or, or RP yet discuss those breakdowns into like components of relative strength and absolute strength. So that that's fascinating to me. And, you know, because we had um, uh, Mike Tashir on. Uh, yeah, yeah. Ago, um, and he was talking about the bonder truck principles just in terms of uh, uh, transfer of training. And if for those who haven't heard that podcast, it's ranking exercises in terms of their ability for, I guess, transferability towards competition specificity. So you have mm-hmm. your exercises and powerlifting would be the big three and weightlifting would be snatch and clean and jerk. And then you have specific developmental exercises, which are like kind of almost exactly like the competition lifts, except not maybe the bar is different, but the biomechanics are the same. Then you have maybe specific preparatory exercises where you're kind of quote unquote strengthening like weak muscle groups. So an example would be like a posterior chain isolation movement for say a deadlift. And then in the off season, you might have GPP. So in kind of putting this together, James, it seems like you could almost find your MRV for each distinctive phase and work that furthermore within say like uh, the context of the larger periodized plan so that as the athlete evolves, you, you know where they are within each respective category relative to competition, it seems. And, and that would make sense for, in my mind, powerlifting and weightlifting, if, if, if you would agree, right? Yes, I I totally agree. That's absolutely spot on, right? So what that means for powerlifting and weightlifting, you know, uh, you can certainly be more specific and break these down into subcomponents. But there's mainly three phases of training for both of those. And again, I'm I'm willing to to uh, submit that there you can be more specific. But basically, you have kind of your high volume and or hypertrophy phase, right? At some point, you move into that strength phase. And then at some point you have like a peaking phase. Now for weightlifting, there's more power elements into all of those, but they follow the same general pattern. If you can figure out the MRVs for any of the subcomponents, as well as the training system as a whole, for any one of those phases, you're going to be doing your athlete a huge favor in the long term because now you can manipulate these things very, very easily across mesocycles. So you say, okay, our last year we prepped for the American Open. We did all these things and we figured out, okay, these were bad, but these were good. So we're going to start in a good place on this one. But, you know, I found that um, your clean and jerk right now is really, really competitive but your snatch is in the toilet. So when we transition into strength, we're going to maybe bring down some volume of something else like maybe clean and jerk technique work or maybe just general strength. And we're really going to be ramping up the snatch work still within the constraints of the MRV that we have already predetermined. And that's where the beauty of this comes in. We're like, as long as you have an idea of where those limits are, like I know where to start and I know where to end. And I know that my training resources are finite. 
I can kind of manipulate them like a pie chart, essentially. That's what you're doing. You're basically taking a corner on the pie chart and moving it around and it auto adjusts for you. And that's what I think is really interesting. So yeah, I totally agree that you, what your, your idea is spot on. And that would make it really, really easy for somebody like yourself or other coaches to say, okay, where, where are the areas that my athlete is or excuse me, I should say, what are the things that are holding my athlete back from being successful and how can I manipulate training to make sure that they're not getting worse at the things they're already good at while bringing up the things that they're bad at? Boom. That's the idea. Yeah, for sure. Another thought, and this has come about as we gain more experience in training, uh, it's just, and we spoke a little bit about like athlete psychology in terms of recovery last time. Um, it, we spoke about perhaps what is uh, backed by science uh, in terms of recovery literature and what is not, and, and talking about uh, athlete psychology. And we haven't quite spoken about <clears throat> with any of our guests, athletes who maybe from training just need to take some time away from the specificity of sport, regardless of what that sport is. Mm -hmm. So that introduce discussions of right, uh, minimum effective volumes. What, we, what can we do to keep them in the game uh, so that they don't quit and that they stay fresh so that uh, perhaps when they take a break from uh, training as quote unquote normal, they still have something to come back to. H have you um, any recommendations for that side of the equation, whether it pertains to minimum effective volumes or perhaps even just uh, to sheer calls them like pivot blocks? Um, I I'd love to hear your thought on that. What I, I have found recently is that it just doesn't seem to take a whole lot of work to hit MEV for most of my athletes. Whereas before I, I think I was overshooting their MEV, sorry, MEV if I'd said MRV. Yeah, that's an awesome point. So, okay. Really, really interesting thought, uh, right? So this is usually something we experience, uh, we call it burnout, right? Where people are just like, fuck this. Like if they have to come in and do more jump rope or wall balls or anything, you're like, I, this is just makes me want to vomit. So this is something we definitely want to avoid whenever we can. But some people are more prone to this than others, and that's perfectly okay. And so they need a break in the monotony and rigors of doing really, really structured sport training. And so usually, you know, I, I use kind of the more traditional nomenclature we call active rest phases right which is basically stay active just don't get worse right and unfortunately for some people active rest means like just fuck off and go like bang hookers and do drugs or whatever they want to do um <laughs> who, who knows right and so that's not ideal so we can bring that back to the discussion of the volume landmarks and we say okay we got a couple things we need to deal with. We have like the physical fatigue that you may be experiencing from this rigorous training cycle. Okay, great. We also have the psychological fatigue, which um, a lot of people deal with differently, right? So got a couple things to consider. One of the things is we need to elevate, uh, we need to keep fitness from decaying. So I have three rules for my active rest phase. One, don't get super fat. Two, don't lose muscle. Three, don't decondition on any of the mo the important characteristics, right? So for 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 uh, bodybuilding, that would be don't lose muscle, right? For powerlifting, like don't get pathetically weak, and for rugby and stuff like that, like don't lose your cardio entirely. So right, that's the big three, right? We just say like don't get super fat, don't decondition, um, don't lose muscle mass. Really is really what it boils down to. Now, how do you do that? Well, that's actually really easy to do. And as you said, hitting an MEV in training, I mean, it's not that crazy. All, I mean, you can, you can just introduce a new exercise and that effectively lowers the MEV for any given mesocycle, right? So if they've been doing high bar squats 
for a while, you can just say, hey, like just do uh, some leg press this time. All right, well, boom, our MEV already went down by one or two sets. Great. Maybe so instead of four sets, they only have to do two. That's pretty cool. But kind of the bigger issue, and I think what you were getting at is this psychological issue where they need a break from this like super rigorous training. And the way that you do that, and this is very largely uh, supported, is by returning the autonomy to the athlete. And so what that means is you have to reinstate their locus of control. They have to feel that they are in control of their life, their destiny, their training. It's in their hands because they have given it all to you for the time being, right? So one of the things you have to do is say, you know what, homie, do your thing. This is not, I'm not going to tell you what to do anymore for the next two weeks to four weeks. You can just do whatever you want. Your life is in your hands. I only ask that you follow those three rules, right? That's awesome. So when you can give it back to them, the psychological fatigue of the rigors tends to ameliorate itself pretty quickly along with social support and some other stuff like that. Now on the training side, we say, okay, I'm giving you, giving you the power back in your hands. The only thing you really need to do, and this is the bare bones minimum, right? Is hit a maintenance volume of training right? Which is abysmally low. You don't have, you barely have to do anything, right? To hit a maintenance volume. You can train like three times a week for 45 minutes or even less to hit your maintenance volumes to keep all of your major fitness characteristics, like your muscle mass, your cardio, et cetera. So that's nothing right now. What you were saying is like, Hey, I, maybe I was overestimating their MEV. So it turns out even to get a little bit better, you don't have to do very much. And that is also very, very true. So what we find more often than not is when you give your athlete active rest so that they can get a break from all the crazy, crazy, right? You say, all right, buddy, come back and see me in like three-ish weeks and we'll, we'll talk about what happened. What's the first thing they do? Well, first they go and like binge and eat pizza and do crazy stuff. And they'll go to the gym and do like shrugs in the front of the dumbbell racks so no one else can use it, stuff like that. Get, get that out of the way, right? And then after about a week, they'll say, okay, that was a bunch of gym fuckery. I'm ready to kind of get back to normal. They'll start actually doing something, right? They'll do some leg presses. They'll do some bench press. They'll do some pull-ups, something along those lines. And just that idea of getting into the gym, breaking a little bit of a sweat, more often than not is probably right around the MEV for most people, right? Especially for athletes who are relatively in tune with like what they know is a decent workout and what is not. The only kind of dead zone you want to avoid, and this is so nitpicky, I feel bad even bringing this up because it's like so lame. But if you had to pick a really bad zone, it would be the zone in between maintenance volume and minimum effective volume, right? That's kind of the dead zone where you're not... Um, you're not doing true maintenance volume training, which would be really awesome for alleviating physical and psychological fatigue. Like training at maintenance volume, if you've never done it before, it's like a fucking godsend. It's great. You just come in, do a couple sets, you walk out, that's it. And you're like, wow, I feel so good. Your preparedness goes through the roof. Psychological cognitive uh, abilities go through the roof. Everything's great, right? Training at MEV is challenging. It's normal. It's what normal training kind of looks like. If you're in between there, you're basically doing training volume that is adding fatigue but it's not really gaining you any fitness. You're, you're not doing any better than maintaining, but you're still doing a little bit extra. So that's kind of the, the training dead zone. So we say, you know what, during active rest, just don't do that. You can train at maintenance or you can train at minimum effective, but I'm not going to tell you, just do whatever you want. Come back and see me. And that is an awesome, awesome, awesome fatigue management strategy, especially for those, as you mentioned, who they don't struggle physically. They struggle psychologically to keep in the game. And I think I use that, um, as on, on a needs basis, but for some people, it might be like two or three times a year where you just say like two weeks, you're on your own, come back and see me later. So uh, what would signs be? Because I, I, I've actually seen that in myself where I'll, I'll take that 
you know, that active rest phase and all. Cause for, yeah, for MV, I can do like three upper lower splits and do like a set or two and I'm fine. Right. Like, yeah, that's awesome. No increased muscle soreness. No, uh, I, I, motivation comes up. Would you say that where you're starting to like flirt between the two is where just that motivation isn't yet coming back and perhaps psychological and physical fatigue is just lingering around or worsening? Maybe, but not necessarily at the same time. In between, it's just it's it's a dead zone because you are not getting as much recovery as you could, right? As if you just went down to bare bones maintenance, right? Because then the volume is just really low at that point, and you're just getting a lot of active active rest style recovery. Excuse me, um, yeah, active recovery at that point. Um, on the other hand, if it's above that but not quite at MEV, you're not making progress, right? So it's a little disheartening in, in some sense because you might be thinking like, oh, I'm going to try and like get better at one X, Y, and Z, but you're really not. And at that point, you're just doing more training, which is not yielding you anything but fatigue. So does it mean that you're not alleviating fatigue? No, it's probably still low enough that like a lot of the the accumulated fatigue is probably still coming down from the previous, you know, competition cycle. It's just not coming down as much as it could. So you're kind of like splitting the difference with, with, with no benefit, right? So at that point, it would be like, just pick one, right? Do you want to keep getting better? Fine. Do a little bit more. Do you want to just feel better about your life and what's going on? Do a little bit less. Trying to split the difference just kind of gets you nowhere fast. So you had, had mentioned there in regards to minimum effective volume. And just again, clarifying for those who, who haven't heard the terms, this is your first time hearing it, just the minimum you need to make gains uh, of some sort somewhere. Um, have you, and you said, James, that's really where we spend the majority of training. Um, as you guys sit down to perhaps update uh, literature, your own literature on, on these volume landmarks, have you changed at all any of your thoughts about time spent at any of, uh, or not any, at either of those ranges, whether it's the effective volume to get better or the maximum to recover from to get better. Uh, has any of that changed or more stayed the same? Mostly stayed the same. So our general recommendations are something to the tune of this, where whenever you start a mesocycle of training, regardless of what it is, doesn't matter if it's bodybuilding, you know, hypertrophy strength, sports stuff, whatever, doesn't matter should start somewhere around your minimum effective volume. Why is that? Well, starting too fast will tend to accumulate fatigue unnecessarily quickly and it might not uh, it might lower your preparedness throughout the mesocycle which can cause you to overreach prematurely. So that's no good. It also has a problem in that it kind of violates the overload principle from a progressive standpoint. If you start too high, you have less room for progression and then that stimulus is not as overloading as it could be week to week or you know however long it goes. So we say start at the minimum that you need to get better and then progress all the way through the mesocycle up to pretty close to the tolerance of, uh, of whatever, whatever it is that you can tolerate. Now, what does that mean? That actually means on average, you're right in the middle. What we, uh, you know, I'm sorry for listeners for all the acronyms, but um, what we call the maximum adaptive volume, MAV, that is where the majority of your training should be. And that is basically that big space in between the minimum and the maximum. So we generally don't want to be pushing the maximum on a regular basis because preparedness is almost certainly going to go down immediately and it's going to lead to premature overreaching, increased injury risk, all that stuff. 
And once you start at the maximum, there's nowhere to go. There's no way that you can progressively overload without, uh, well, I take that back. There's no way to progressively overload because trying to increase at that point is only going to perpetuate overreaching, possibly into non-functional overreaching, overtraining syndrome, et cetera, right? So kind of the idea is the bulk of your training should be in between those two things. You know, 80% of your training should be spent in that, what we call the MAV, which is, you know, above minimum, but a little bit below maximum as well, especially you know, for strength sports, what we find is that really, really pushing the training volume, especially of what you're doing in the gym, you know, may adversely affect preparedness in other areas. For example, like your ability to do high intensity cardio or your ability to actually execute your team uh, tactics in practice. Why? Because you're still like all stupid brain from a deadlift session that you did yesterday. Uh, which happens. I get that all the time where you're just like, man, I'm like so overreached. I can't think straight and you do dumb stuff. I actually started going, I made my, I reappeared at a rugby practice over here in the back bay club in, in Southern California. And it was a rude awakening for me because I haven't fucking like seriously ran for years. Right. And so I had been like trying to prep myself a little bit. I'd been started running. I got some cleats. I was trying to break them in, but didn't even come close to that first rugby practice. And it took my uh, calves you know, like uh, over a week to, to feel normal again. So basically like, right for me, that was like right at my MRV. It was like, I wasn't even fully recovered the next time there was a rugby session to, to have. So would it be in my best interest to try and keep doing more? No, at some point my calves and my ankles are just going to you know break and I'll get nowhere. So a better idea probably would have been either to do, to do more prep and build up for that or do less volume of rugby the first couple times and build up slowly until I can actually start progressing in the total duration of those activities per week that I can tolerate something like that. Yeah. And, and if you've been <clears throat> listening and wondering, well, how do I know perhaps what that maximum recoverable volume is, uh, hopefully in doing it correctly, you won't be struggling with, you know, nagging aches and pains, right? It's the most you can recover from. So by definition, you, uh, not to have that per se, um, but it's that, do you feel recovered for the next session? So yeah, in, in that case, James would have exceeded his MRV for say Friday's practice if it was Monday because it took a week to recover. So it, it can be as subjective as the next session you feel like you can go again, if I'm not mistaken there, James, before I, I turn it over to Kyle, because I know he has a few questions. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you can, you can be more specific and you can look at, you know, performance and movement speed and efforts, but also like, do I feel like I'm ready to go? And if the answer is no, well, you're probably not recovered. So one of the questions I had when you were talking about, uh, as well as a couple more, but when you're talking about moving from MEV to MRV across a mesocycle is what that may look like for different fitness characteristics. So I know for uh, hypertrophy, it generally looks like adding a set per week, uh, but that may look different for strength and maximal strength or uh, endurance, et cetera. Yeah, correct. Absolutely. So, um, you know, when you're dealing with kind of strength and power related stuff, right? The primary driving force for those is not volume, ironically. Now, volume's part of it, but it's not the big driving force for making those adaptations. It's actually the intensity. Well, it turns out the intensity is still part of that volume calculation. So when you're dealing with strength, the progression that you're going to do is a very light volume progression in terms of adding sets per week, but you will be much more aggressive in how much weight 
you add per week. So the absolute intensity makes bigger jumps during a strength phase than it does during a hypertrophy phase. And as a result of that bigger increase in weight, you do actually see a volume increase. So for strength and power stuff, like if you're adding heavy squats, heavy benches, more clean, you know, more getting close to maximal clean and jerks and snatches, right? The primary driving force there will be how much weight you're putting on the bar. You will add some sets week to week, but the bigger factor will be, am I progressing in weight? That's the bigger deal, right? Now, for endurance, it actually looks a little bit more similar to hypertrophy, believe it or not, just kind of in a different roundabout way. For endurance, you're going to be increasing week to week both the total duration, which can be like the total distance you traveled, the number of reps that you did if it was intermittent, or the, just the total time spent during uh, doing that kind of training. Now, you should be also cognizant of the intensity, right? So how do we do intensity progressions for endurance training? Well, for long, slow distance, kind of our low, uh, low intensity uh, endurance training, we're going to be monitoring our race pace, right? So essentially, we're going to be looking at the time trial, right? Am I completing a given distance slightly faster week to week? Am I pushing my RPE or my race pace RPE a little bit harder? Am I completion times going down a little bit? You know, now if you're increasing duration, your completion times will not necessarily be going down because you're just doing more, right? But so you can look at like how, what's your minute per mile pace or something similar to that in that case. And that would be a good marker of intensity. And it should be getting a little bit harder week to week, but the driving force there will be the total distance and or duration trained. Very similarly, when you're looking at high intensity cardio, like doing um, intermittent cardio, repeated sprints and stuff, you're actually going to want to see a fairly symmetrical uh, increase in both. Now, this is where it starts to get a little funny, right? If you're doing sub-maximal high-intensity interval training, which is what most sports are, most sports you're not truly doing a like a Tabata sprint, you know, or whatever. You're 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 doing like a hard run or hard effort and then resting and going back, right? What we would want to see is the same idea, right? Like the RPE, the effort goes up. You can measure like how fast they ran in terms of velocity, or you can look at completion times per repetition. You would want to see the intensity going up just a little bit, but you would also want to see an increase in the total distance traveled or the number of repetitions performed as well. So you'd want to see a little bit of both in that case. Now for, um, if you're doing true, 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 like repeated sprint type training, which some people need to do, right? Can you realistically improve intensity when each rep is a, basically a maximal effort or, or damn near close to it? Not really. So at that point, you'll have to monitor uh, uh, their volume. So the number of reps they do progress in reps, but you will also have to look at how much their speed drops off from each subsequent interval. Why is that important? Because you get into this junk volume problem where if they, and it's very difficult to determine, and I, I can't give you a hard line, but usually somewhere if you're uh, below like 85 ish percent, and that's fudgeable, don't, don't, you know, take a hard line on that, but somewhere around, I would say 85% of your maximum running speed or maximum acceleration, and you're falling below that, you're not really training for, um, sprinting anymore, right? You're actually just doing more uh, cardiovascularly intensive stuff. So what I would do is progress in volume in terms of efforts for those guys. And then I would start to monitor at which number of efforts does their speed drop off to a point where they're no longer training speed. And that's how I would do it for them. So it's, it's a little bit different, right? For each kind of thing, but you kind of see the same common trends, right? Where it's like increased volume, 
in, in most cases, whether that's indirectly through increasing the weight on the bar or directly by increasing sets or number of efforts or durations and increasing the intensity a little bit. Now we said intensity is more important for some things like high intensity uh, cardio, power and strength, uh, and less important for other things like continuous running, jogging, swimming, and hypertrophy. But there should be some element of both in there. And that's how you would go from MEV to MRV. Awesome. Uh, so the next questions I have, um, and I'm just going to throw both of them out there and, and you can maybe answer which one uh, you think best first, but would be what uh, fitness characteristics would be best to pair together um, uh, if you're doing a concurrent plan? And then also from that, uh, kind of the time courses you can expect for um, good adaptation. So I know we actually, we had Alex Harrison on um, a while ago and he mentioned for VO2 max type training around six weeks is when you're kind of going to start seeing a decline in the adaptations that you're trying to occur. Um, so similar to for other parts of training, uh, there's going to be time courses to where you may not be getting uh, much more added benefit and spending some time away from it and then coming back is going to be a much better idea. Absolutely. Absolutely correct. Um, I actually, one of the few publications I'm on, believe it or not, like uh, scientific reviewed publications is on this idea. It's called uh, repeated sprints, high intensity interval training and small sided games, something or other. Mm. You can search it in PubMed and it's actually a, a model that basically kind of describes this whole idea. So typically what we recommend is doing, um, and this is, this would be working with traditional sports, like your team sports kind of stuff. Uh, it would be as follows during your general preparatory phases, the typical type of weight training stuff you're going to be doing is either going to be work capacity related and or hypertrophy and maybe some kind of more generalized strength, right? Those are kind of the main, the main options there to pair a cardio activity. Usually we would recommend doing your more continuous stuff or the longer, the longer intervals work that you're going to be doing for that training cycle. So you might have a sport where doing continuous training is more necessary. Or if you're, uh, if you have an athlete whose baseline cardio is already pretty good and you're ready to move them into intervals, but they're not quite prepared for high intensity intervals, that would be a good time to start introducing kind of basic interval training. So, and it, you know, you know, for like soccer, rugby and those kind of sports, like sometimes you get guys who are pieces of shit or girls who are pieces of shit, right? They come in totally out of shape and you say like, we can't even do sprinting because you're such a fat turd, right? So we got to like get you into cardio shape. And so that might mean, might mean doing like your kind of traditional long, slow distance training for them just to get them up to speed. Right. And so that would be the time to do that. Why is that? Well, because the MRVs for all of those fitness characteristics are incredibly high and it's unlikely that anything that you're doing in that time is going to significantly impair preparedness for any of the things that you're trying to train. So another way of saying is the cardio is not going to really hamper the stuff you're doing in the gym and the gym stuff is really not going to hamper your cardio too much. Now there are some concurrent training considerations. We know that, um, there are some cellular regulators that are conflicting. We also know that there's volume restrictions, right? Like if I could just do all weight training, I would get really jacked. Or if I could just do all cardio, I would get really fit. Splitting the difference means I get a little bit less of both, right? And that's normal. That's nothing to avoid or, or shake, you know, shake our head at. It just is normal, right? So we say, okay, that's the time I'm going to do those things. So my general strength training where it's either hypertrophy work capacity or basic strength it's going to happen in that general preparatory phase, which is going to be months, months away from competitions or main season type stuff. 
And that's usually going to be prepared with our kind of traditional long, slow distance cardio or longer basic interval type cardio. At some, sorry. Can I interrupt? Yeah, yeah. Just uh, just to make sure, because I I, I find that in, uh, especially endurance, that there can be many different names for uh, many different things. So long, slow distance is obviously very, very simple. I think that's one that stays the same. But when you're describing longer uh, intervals, what are exactly uh, are you meaning there just to make sure that we're on the same page? Yeah. So what, I, what we're not saying is doing like sprint, rest, sprint, rest, sprint, rest. That would be like high intensity interval training, right? Longer intervals might be like jog for, or you know, not jog, but maybe like run hard for a minute or two, rest for a minute, repeat kind of stuff. So you're kind of moving them into doing higher intensity type, type cardio, but it's not a true maximal effort. It's really not even approaching maximal effort, but it's substantially more anaerobic than continuous exercise, right? So this would be something like, for example, if I had a, a rugby guy and they were in pretty good shape already, what instead of moving them into like doing crazy, crazy hit training, which is going to be good later, but it will start to um, become, it will impair what they're doing in the gym and the gym, it will, sorry, let me back up. It will, um, they will, they will butt heads in terms of preparedness, in terms of what they're doing in the gym and trying to achieve hit training at the same time. It just doesn't work very well. So what I would say is, all right, we're going to start getting you ready for actual rugby conditioning, which is higher intensity running, right? What we're not going to do is crazy, crazy, super specific training yet. We're just going to get you ready to go. So we might do like one minute on, one minute off, or like one minute on, 30 seconds off kind of thing where they're not sprinting. They're just doing like a hard run, something like that, just to get them prepped in that kind of anaerobic capacity for the upcoming rugby season. Does that make sense? Awesome. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I just wanted to, to make sure um, that that's what I... I was under, I, I took it as that, but I wanted to make sure that that's what you meant as well. Yeah, totally, totally. It can, it can, can confusing. The endurance people love to like subcategorize every little thing. It's, it's hard to keep up with, <laughs> which is fine. I mean, yeah, it's, it's worth discussing, but sometimes it gets crazy. So can we move on to the next one? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, awesome. So at some point you make the transition into what we call the specific preparatory period, which most people call kind of like the preseason where you have a competition or your main season starting. It's kind of within, you can see it off in the distance. So maybe a couple months from then. Now we're going to start moving into kind of the most meat and potatoes type of training for your sport and the more highly specific stuff. So this is where we'll start getting into more maximal strength, power and speed, excuse me, related stuff. And we're going to start trying to pair that with the proper cardio here now is where we're going to start moving into that high intensity interval type training. And this is where we're going to be asking them to make close to a maximal effort, but maybe not truly asking them to make a maximal effort, but maybe like 90% of that uh, in an interval start type fashion. What types of intervals are they going to be doing? Well, we're going to be moving into what I like to call bioenergetic specificity, which is training the energy systems that they need for their sport in a way that is the most similar to the actual sporting activity. And so most of uh, team sports, thanks to GPS and time motion analysis, you can look up things like work to rest ratios where you can say, okay, for every, you know, uh, one, one uh, unit of effort, there's five units of rest 
right? Or something like that. And that's very, very common to find. And then you can pair that with some of the information that you already got before. So we said for rugby, it's probably somewhere around zero to 20 meters. So I can say, okay, we're going to be doing 20 meter sprints. That's going to take you, you know, roughly just, we'll just make it easy. Five seconds. I know that rugby work to rest ratios are typically somewhere around one to five, depending on player position. So now we're going to be having you do 20 meter sprints with roughly 25 to 30 second breaks in between. Boom. That's how I'm going to set up my high intensity cardio for them. And it turns out as a result of you lowering the volume down uh, systemically, right? So as you move into that specific preparatory period, we already said probably around two thirds, maybe a half of the normal training volume. We're going to do that right off the bat. And that's going to come from all sources. So we're going to say weight training goes down cardio durations go down, but intensity is going up very substantially, which lowers the MEV. Really awesome. So MRV goes down, but MEV also goes down. So you have to, you don't have to do as much to get the gains that you want. So, so there we're going to be looking at strength, power, right? And high intensity uh, interval type cardio. And that's going to start serving us very, very well. And we might even start moving into things like direct sprint training or uh, repeated sprint training, depending on the needs analysis. So if you have somebody whose sprint technique is just like dog shit, or they're real slow, um, you might start moving into direct sprinting work at that point. Now, you might also be doing other stuff. You might be doing like sled pushes or uh, other kind of transitional exercises, things along those lines. And that's fine too, right? But here's kind of where it gets interesting. At this point, you're also going to be increasing the amount of time doing their practice stuff, right? So every all the training components are going down except for time spent doing uh, actual sport training, which is actually going up. So what we actually find is that most sport training practices when done at relatively live pace actually start to serve very, very much like high-intensity interval training. And they have found that using things like what we call small-sided games, which is basically like a a simulated version of the sport with a different kind of constriction like field size or players can't do a certain skill or ability. They have to only do X, Y, and Z things using the small sided games actually can elicit virtually the same cardiovascular response as a hit training session, which is really neat. So we're already kind of ramping up cardio just from ramping up our sport training, which is pretty neat. So then at some point we're going to be moving into, which is basically our in season or our competitive phase where everything is going to start moving down in general, right? So all weight training is going to be moving down close to maintenance volumes. All specific cardio work is going to be moving down close to maintenance volumes and sport training is going to be basically as high as we can take it, which might be at MEV or might even be pushing the MAV a little bit, which is great, right? Here's where it gets really interesting from a concurrent training perspective. What we can do is actually rely on things like small-sided games to hit a whole bunch of check marks on our training volume landmark sheet. Why is that? Well, turns out that in many cases, doing our sport training can help maintain speed abilities like power and speed characteristics, check, right? In some cases can help maintain some basic strength and muscle mass, check, maybe not as good as weight training, but to a small extent, great. It can definitely help maintain or even improve some cardiovascular stuff, check, and all the while, working on the skills and abilities needed for that sport. So you hit the technique component check and you hit the tactics component check. Holy shit, that's a lot of stuff. What are the volume implications there? Well, it means you can take basically everything else down quite a bit to free up more and more time for doing sports stuff. So from a volume landmarks perspective, that would be contributing to achieving 
basically what is a maintenance volume for a whole variety of things. So that means the amount of specific cardio training that you need to do at that point is very, very low. The amount of specific weight training you need to do is basically maintenance volume. The amount of specific uh, plyometric speed, agility, change of direction type stuff, basically very, very low, almost maybe even no direct work outside of people who really need it. So it's pretty cool when you start thinking of it like that, like can some of these things like just doing my sport actually hit a maintenance volume for some of these fitness or skills and abilities? Yeah, actually it can. And that would that would apply to things like doing concurrent training, like your strength and your cardio where now I'm actually, what's the best way to get like cardio for rugby outside of developing, you know, basic, basic fitness turns out like playing rugby is probably a really good way of doing that in the most specific context. Right. So it goes a long way and it gets really, really fun to play around with some of those numbers. And what you find is that, um, as we kind of talked about before, when we talked about active rest, the maintenance volume to like the, the, the volume you need to maintain your cardio or to maintain your strength is so low. Most people overshoot it substantially where they say, and some coaches will even go back, they'll backtrack. And I'm sure you guys have seen this where they'll say, we need to do tens, like sets of 10 in season to maintain our muscle mass. Right. Yeah. And it's like, that's a good thought, right? It's, it's, it's a well-intentioned thought. You're like, okay, we know that low volume training can, can decrease muscle mass. We need to increase the volume from time to time. But it turns out that like, all you need to do is hit a maintenance volume for muscle mass, which is like nothing doing sets of 10 will exceed your MRV for a lot of things like maximal strength, power and speed and bring preparedness down. And so that's a pretty unfavorable trade-off at that point. And that's why it's good to have an idea of what these numbers are. That's really cool. Um, so Kyle, you, you, do you have any more? Yeah, go ahead. He, go ahead. he, he pointed to me and he like held up four fingers. Like I have four questions. Um, nice. So, <laughs> Went through the checklist. Yeah. 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 <laughs> of course, being, uh, respectful of your, your time is maybe we wrap it up here. We, we had been speaking about it and, and Kyle works with a lot of grade school athletes. Um, and, and there are probably, probably a lot of coaches li listening who do as well. Um, I was reminded of this too with weightlifting world championships having just passed and considerations of youth and junior athletes. Mm. Uh, do you, I, I know you, you uh, are very much into field sports um, and I would imagine with that comes some athlete development. Certainly you're like perhaps not youth development, but junior development. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and have you thought about how, because of course, as an, athlete matures and, and develops their requisite technique and improves in their sports specific uh, technical abilities, um, their recoverable volumes will be changing. Things are happening there. Do you have any uh, ideas or feedback for coaches as for how they might want to be mindful for creating a, a thoughtful plan for a rising athlete in the context of the volume landmarks? Absolutely. So this is a really interesting question because you get into a conundrum. The conundrum is this, right? We said the volume landmarks are very important, but their training age is effectively zero. Their minimum effective volume is effectively zero, right? They could just think about bench press and they get better at bench press. That's literally the situation, right? Because they haven't trained before and that's normal. And it's a pretty cool situation to be in. And we also know that they're going to be getting incredible beginner gains. Now, there is something weird about youth athletes in that they seem to have MRVs of infinity, especially like if you work with like middle aged, uh, like middle school, sorry, not middle aged, middle school aged uh, girls, you can give them like 20 by 10 in the squat and they'll just shrug it off. 
right? It's like it's nothing. <laughs> it's for them it is nothing because they just can't generate that much force to the point where it's it's basically for them it's like doing air squats, right? It's nothing, and then the next day they'll be fine. So you kind of get into this conundrum where you say like they have incredible recoverability, right? Recovery ability. Their MRVs are like through the roof, but their MEVs are almost nothing. It's basically like just get into the gym and do something, right? So here's the idea that we we generally promote with youth, uh, like we're talking about like grade school, middle school, high school going into adulthood, college athletics. The most important thing is not managing the volume landmarks, believe it or not. The most important thing is actually developing a foundation of technique and experience doing these sports skills, doing their weight training, doing their sprint training, doing their sport training, developing the technique, developing the muscle mass that will face potentiate strength and power in the years to come in adulthood is probably the most important thing. So for when we deal with youth people, we rarely, I mean, seldomly never have them do anything less than like five or six reps. It's almost always kind of work capacity, tens range, unless we're doing very specific technique work. If we're doing technique work, it might be less than that, right? But that's not meant to be training and stimulative. It's meant to be technique work. All of the training stuff is usually going to be like sets of eight to 10, mostly focusing on technique, keeping the reps in reserve, probably like three to four, never necessarily pushing the, the, the boundaries of intensity or relative effort. And then every now and again, peppering in some strength phases, right? Like doing some fives or sixes every now and again, just to get them excited about strength and just to keep monitoring their strength, make sure they're making progress. But what a lot of coaches do they do a lot of dumb shit. It's hard to even say like, oh, they do this, right? They do a ton of dumb shit. Some some coaches will just throw them through the ringer and the kids that survive are the ones that make the starting team on football. Like, okay, great. Great job, coach. On the other hand, you have coaches who want to push the intensity all the time. They have their kids doing one rep maxes. They never fucking learn how to lift and they think that doing one rep maxes is how you lift and get strong, right? Yeah. No, all that stuff's crazy. <laughs> All we need to do is get them in the gym, get them used to doing some of these things so that when they go to fucking college, they don't have to learn how to squat or how to do like a deadlift, right? They already know how to do this. They've already trained their glutes, their quads, their lower backs. Their technique is really, really solid. And they've never had any stupid training related injuries from doing one rep max testing or needlessly pushing the intensity, right? That's what we usually say. Don't worry about pushing the MRV. Get them in the gym. Have them do, you know, a couple sets here or there. You can progress in volume, especially like if you're, if you have like young men and women, like high school age and you want them to gain muscle mass, right? Like that's usually something we see uh, at high school age where we say, you know, you're, you're just not big and strong enough yet to be competitive at the college level. Like if you want to go play college basketball, college football, you want to be on the, the women's soccer D one soccer team, you just got to be bigger and stronger, right? Then we can start saying, all right, you know what? Your technique is really good on everything. We feel confident you're not going to do something silly and injure yourself. Now we can start pushing the volume, the volume a little bit and getting an idea of some of these volume landmarks. But for like middle school age kids, throw that out the window. Just make sure that they're doing really, really solid foundational technique. Learn how to run, learn how to jump, learn how to sprint, learn how to squat, do all that stuff. And then once they get a little bit older and they're thinking about specializing in athletics, then you start doing a little bit more number crunching. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and this is more of a personal question for myself. And I know there's a bunch of different thoughts on it. But with maybe high school athletes and those middle school athletes, um, you talked about obviously teaching them the proper, proper mechanics and, and things like that. Do you still include a lot of I don't know, speed and power training at that age? Or do you think it's best just to get them 
to teach them the lifts and get them strong and do that from their sport. Yeah. And perhaps uh, bigger uh, and obviously keeping in mind the sports that they have. And then the sport is where they're going to get all their speed and power for that age. And then in college is the time where they can start getting fancier with that thing. So I know I see, you see a lot of people doing like, this is way on the end of probably way too advanced techniques for kids, but like the overspeed treadmills and stuff. Oh which is, God, no. Oh Jesus yeah, Christ. That's, that, that's very, obviously that's a way on one side of the spectrum, but even just like um, uh, doing like solely speed training and agility training and stuff. Yeah. So you basically nailed it. I just wanted to expand on it just a little bit. Um, what we find is that uh, for, for most people, especially young adults, the limiting factor for them being able to the limiting factors i should say for them being able to express power and speed are two things one they have to learn how to move two the amount of force that they can generate right so the amount of force they can generate can be influenced by strength and certainly by gaining muscle mass and so that's a really easy one so what we say is yeah we usually don't spend a lot of tr- time trying to intrinsically develop power and speed characteristics because the limiting factors are primarily strength and how well they can move, right? So what we find is that for for the youth athletes, we don't spend a lot of time doing that. But what we do teach them is technique. And that's basically kind of the same discussion that we just had where we say, I'm teaching you how to sprint, but I'm not going to beat you down with sprinting, right? I'm teaching you how to do the actual movement. I'm teaching you how to jump and land properly. So later on, when you do this in training, you'll already have a leg up on everyone else, right? But the bulk of the training as you said, will be primarily technique and then working on things that will help increase their force output. Because here's the other thing, which is, this is where it gets a little kind of spicy and interesting because strength is the limiting factor for most people. If you took like two middle school age cohorts, right? You had one do really, really specific training where they did like plyometrics and weightlifting derivatives, maybe not like full snatches, but like maybe they did pulls, right? Something like that. And you had another group that just did like hypertrophy work and you looked at how much power or speed they gained either in jumping ability or sprinting ability, you would find the groups to be nearly identical. Why? Because the limiting factor for them is not how actually explosive they are. It's just how much force they can generate at that point. So you would find that the training outcomes would be incredibly similar. Whereas gaining uh, muscle mass uh, training, like hypertrophy training is very, very low risk and will potentiate long-term gains in strength, right? Whereas doing um, power training, speed training doesn't really do that in the long-term at all. It only potentiates those gains in the short-term. So it's a definite trade-off. So for us, we say, get that, like, as you said, get that type of training from doing your sport. Like you want to do sprints, go run up and down the basketball court when you're playing basketball. We're going to teach you how to do it safely and effectively. And then we're going to develop the intrinsic characteristics of developing muscle mass, strength, and coordination so that that will carry you throughout your athletic career. Awesome. So in in wrapping up, I I just want to highlight something that James has hit on a lot and that we hit on seemingly ad nauseum. It's that the things we do in the gym are uh, not, you, you might have forgotten because you learned long ago, not things that you just pick up. Uh, they're skills that have to be cultivated over time. So uh, you just really need to make sure because we, as we mentioned in the past few podcasts that when you have an, uh, a new uh, athlete, they don't even have to be youth, but when you have a new athlete and you mess up their development and you get them injured, it's likely that that might be the end of it and they, they might not come back. Uh, so 
the technical foundation needs to be seen as a skill, as the coach or as a parent, just see it as a process. It's okay if it's not perfect at first, it likely will not be. And it has to be fostered. It takes time. And similarly, as James mentioned, the intensities, even with endurance or cardio uh, on that spectrum of low versus high, that too has to be uh, developed as a skill and as a sense of progression. Uh, if someone can't make it through that low intensity session, we need to develop that first before the high intensity practice. We need to develop sprint mechanics before we're thrown into high sprint training. Uh, these are all skills. These are not quote unquote functional in that you can magically perform them. So I just wanted to highlight the importance therein of just taking your time with beginners on these technical pieces, because like you said, James, that the volume landmarks don't apply to them. It doesn't matter. It just has to become a safe entry into the sport. I 100% agree. And here's the funny thing. You can tie it back to the volume landmarks later where you say, I have spent time on sprint mechanics with you know this cohort of young athletes. How much sprint training, how much, how much time will I have to do sprint mechanics for them to retain that throughout the rest of their athletic career? Uh, after you've learned it, like none, right? Like they just, like, how have, have you ever forgotten how to sprint that could not be remedied in, you know, one to two training sessions? That's the idea, <laughs> right? So then you tie it back to volume and you say like, if you teach them how to do these things properly, right? If you teach them how to squat properly, they're not going to forget right? They might be a little rusty if you don't do any squats for a long time, but the maintenance volume for those things is so abysmally low. Even just thinking about it might be enough to maintain the skill and they won't have, they'll only be thinking about it because they have learned it already at some point. So I, I'm totally on, uh, on board with you there. Awesome. Uh, so uh, James, and being respectful of your time, I think, I think we'll uh, wrap it up here. Uh, again, thank you so much. Uh, you had mentioned that you're you're working on, I don't know if it's volume two, or it sounds like volume two of the, um, well, volume two of the volume landmarks. Uh, <laughs> is time that people might be expecting that if we could steer them there or is this still very much? Still a work in progress. Maybe by next year. Um, so I'm going to try and finish it up. I got it pretty good chunk of it done now, but I still need to kind of get my draft zero completed before I even send it to other people to look at. And then I, you know, it goes through a number of revisions and yada, yada, yada. So hopefully by next year, I'll have something out. Awesome. Well, in the meantime, there's plenty of literature that James has written through Renaissance periodization. Uh, we'll, we'll link all of that below. Uh, James, uh, it, I think that, like I said, wraps it up. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time today. Thanks for all the great questions. It's really fun intellectual discussion for me. So I really appreciate your guys' time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thanks for coming on. All right, well, we'll let you go and have a great thanks, day. Thanks, you too, guys.